today on CityCast Chicago. We know some of the names running to replace Mayor Lori Lightfoot. State Rep Cam Buckner joined the race late last week. Alderman Raymond Lopez is also running. And the name many of us have heard for years, but most recently as the giver of free gas. Willie Wilson. If you ever wondered where Wilson's money comes from, it's a story that starts with a global but Chicago-based company that gave Wilson an opportunity. Today, how McDonald's entrenched itself in Black America. It's Monday, May 16th. I'm Carrie Shepard in for Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. And it, it was the man, Ray Kroc, who I had an opportunity to meet back in 1979, that when I didn't have any money, that I had the opportunity to go and just ask him for the opportunity to own a McDonald's restaurant. And he gave me that opportunity. Willie Wilson started out as a custodian at a McDonald's in 1970. He eventually became a manager. So the story goes that he tracked down McDonald's founder Ray Kroc, at a shareholders meeting and told him he wanted to own his own franchise of the chain. Kroc then helped Wilson make that happen. Was this a a common story for black franchisee owners that you could maybe work your way up in McDonald's, own a McDonald's and potentially become a millionaire who's giving out, you know, millions of dollars in gas giveaways decades later? Absolutely not. So (laughs) there are two things for us to keep in mind. Marsha Chatlin is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of franchise, the golden arches in black America. She talked with CityCast host Jacoby Cochran about the book and her own relationship with McDonald's growing up in Chicago. These early guys who get into franchising, some of them don't survive. Um, There's a lot of respect and commemoration for the founders of the National Black McDonald's Operators Association, but there are, you know, there's a portion of the men, and they're they're mostly men, um, who are early in franchising, um, you know, between 68 and 80, who lose their res- restaurants mm. uh, for a number of reasons. Um, unstable financing, um, lack of capital, and McDonald's had to go in, I believe, in the 1980s and kind of make sure that people weren't using um, loan sharks and other, um, you know, devious uh, financing entities to get money for franchising. So there are some people who were not able to make those millions or expand the number of restaurants they had. The narrative that you could start as a cashier and then became a friend and then become a franchise owner, that was a real part of the McDonald's advertising narrative in the 80s and 90s, especially within Black communities. That was an incredibly rare instance. Um, today, the ability to work your way up to McDonald's is very rare because you just need so much capital, liquid, um, in order to qualify. But I think that myth is so powerful. We all probably remember the McDonald's of our childhood. So I want to start there. We both from Chicago. Where did you grow up in the city and how did McDonald's figure into your world as a kid? Was you always like, Mama, we can we get McDonald's? And she said, We you got McDonald's money? It's kind of funny because um I'm from an immigrant family and a lot of my cousins and a lot of our friends, um, their moms didn't really let them eat fast food and stuff. But my mom was a single mom and she also 
was more willing to just kind of do American culture stuff. So we were like allowed to have McDonald's quite a bit, which I think a lot of people found shocking. So there was the McDonald's in Rogers Park on Western that we would go to. And then there was a McDonald's downtown on Jackson and State. And that was my after school McDonald's. And then I got my first job at the Chicago Tribune. And there was a McDonald's, I think, on Michigan Avenue. That was like my work time McDonald's. And then then there were the various McDonald's that you hit up <laughs> on your way out of Chicago, on your way to Indiana. You know, you know how it goes. No, for sure. I never lived that many blocks away from McDonald's. I'm just being real. 87th Street, 63rd Street is always a McDonald's on Marquette or right off 87th, right off 83rd and Chatham. For you, was McDonald's, like now I see, you know, people in there playing chess. It's kind of got like a social element for like young people. Was that the same for you growing up? Is that 100%. somewhere where you and your friends would meet up? Yeah, because um, I I assume you're younger than me, Jacoby, but... I'm 31 as of a week and a half ago. Oh, congratulations. My 30s were hot. Enjoy, enjoy that time <laughs> before the lower back pain sets in. But, you know, here's the thing. We didn't have cell phones. I didn't have a cell phone until I graduated college. Mm. So how are you supposed to know where you're supposed to go unless you all meet at McDonald's? And so when I was like in seventh, eighth grade after school, we would like all buy fries and then put them out on the tray and we could sit there and hang out. We, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we used to study at McDonald's, but maybe a lot of studying didn't happen. Um, and then in um, high school, the McDonald's in Water Tower, you know, at the shopping mall, even if you didn't have a lot of money to buy things at a Michigan Avenue store, you could go to the McDonald's on Michigan Avenue. And then mm-hmm. there's a McDonald's in Navy Pier, too. And I think that that was also the spot. <laughs> listen, Chale, listen. If, if you ain't write this book, I'd be like, why my G know all the McDonald's across listen, Chicago? Listen, I am not new to this. I know every McDonald's in the city of Chicago. Seriously. Um, You know, with that being said, your book doesn't open up on this this childhood history. It opens up talking about the murder of Mike Brown by police in Ferguson, Missouri. And specifically, it focuses on the McDonald's at Florissant Avenue. What was it about this McDonald's that was significant to the unrest in Ferguson? And, and why start here? The thing that I thought was really fascinating was this McDonald's was like, the epicenter of so much of what was happening, whether it was the place where the police were changing shifts, you saw reporters, you know, um, reporting live from right in front of the McDonald's. A friend of mine had gone down to organize supplies for protesters and she was tear gassed by the police. And that was the place that, you know, people were running to, to try to get relief. And so it, for me, it was just like, this is too perfect because I knew that what brought McDonald's into a lot of Black communities was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the response to mm-hmm. that assassination. And so it was like this unbroken line of history. This is like, nobody cares, but this is like inside historian baseball. I 100% um, give a damn. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, when you're writing, you know, a piece of history, don't start with too much of a contemporary moment. It becomes dated. But for me, it was like if if Ferguson will never be dated Mm -hmm. it is such a significant and impactful moment Mm -hmm. and so that Ferguson McDonald's I think just says it all about this idea that more black business can save black people and Mm. why that's not true. It's interesting. You mentioned how this moment in 2014, August 9th, 2014 kind of reawakening this like constant trauma, black Americans feel when I think about the civil rights movement in the aftermath post MLK's assassination, 
McDonald's and its growth is completely invisible to me. So can you explain where McDonald's and this pivotal moment of Dr. King's assassination, how do these two things meet? Essentially what happens after King's assassination in 1968 is that there is a there is a call for racial reckoning. And this should sound very familiar to everyone because it's what we went through in 2020. And the question is, what do people want and what do they need? And so a lot of the groups they call riot commissions in cities like Chicago and New York for years, they're interviewing people and they're asking, why are Black people so mad? And people say, look, we need decent housing. We need schools for our kids. We need good paying jobs. We need the police to stop terrorizing us. And we would like to shop in our communities from uh, businesses that are respectful of us and don't rip us off. And it's like the um, Charlie Brown car- cartoon where like the teacher is talking and you know what she's saying. It's like they heard nothing. They're here, wah, 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 and all the other stuff. And they're like, you know what people want? They want businesses. And there's this real kind of quick sense that if we open businesses, this is the answer politically. Mm-hmm. It keeps Black people in their place because the idea of Black business lifting communities really depends on segregated neighborhoods and segregated living. And it's something tangible that people can say, okay, we had these huge uprisings. We had these rebellions and look, look what, look what solved the problem. Mm -hmm. And what McDonald's saw was if we bring in black franchise owners, if we move into the inner city, if we continue our focus on the inner city, We can align with the politics of the moment. We can use federal funding that was available through the Office of Minority Business Enterprise, and we can rewrite ourselves into this new moment, and we can tap into market share. They write themselves into a civil rights narrative that is not only inaccurate, it's just weird. But it makes perfect sense if you think about how in the United States in the 20th century, the response to Black pain, Black grief, Black anger is, well, you just want a bigger piece of the pie. And let, let's just to focus on black dollars, black right? dollars, this idea that you can sort of buy equality and buy your way um, out of the trauma. The book is called Franchise, which, of course, represents the opportunity to own a McDonald's restaurant and hopefully even more than one. When does Chicago see its first black owned uh, McDonald's and how and is that the same time when when this starts to proliferate? So prior to 1968, there had been conversations about trying to get a Black franchise owner of a McDonald's. And then what happens in, you know, April 68, after um, King is assassinate, assassinated, it kind of turns up the heat, right? Everyone wants to kind of get in on this. And so Herman Petty, who was a Chicago local, he was a barber, he had been a bus driver for CTA. He gets approached by a man named Roland Jones, who is hired by McDonald's to start looking for the first Black franchise owner. And so he reopens a store, and this is really important, he reopens a store that a white franchise owner no longer wants. And so in Woodlawn, it's not a coincidence that the store reopens December 1968. So it's not even a year from King's death that this man enters McDonald's and then other black men, um, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s follow suit.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So can you tell me what does this recruiting effort look like? Because it's obviously not about just giving black folks a chance, but it, it goes into marketing and advertising. Like what is this? What's the word I'm looking for? This uh, sort of full scale approach of, of recruiting black customers look like from the McDonald's perspective? So they're starting kind of. um you know, slowly. They're like, are Black people really going to do this? And what they find very quickly is they called them the Black stores. I had to make this up. (laughs) You know, the Black stores were doing really well um, because they um, they were in a market that didn't have a lot of competitors. They're um, this brand that's very popular and very kind of cool. People are, you know, looking at McDonald's and their businesses that are considered black owned businesses and people really want to line up behind it. So they're being successful. But one of the things that the black franchise owners notice is that McDonald's is not advertising in any of the outlets that um, black people are turning to. And they hire Braille Communications of Chicago to do that work. Yeah, I'm part of the management team now, mama. Oh, baby, I'm so proud of you. It's only afternoons. But still, it's a promotion. I gotta get back to work. Guess what, Anna? Calvin is the new manager at McDonald's. Straight up? <laughs> Cal's been on it at Mickey D's, so they gave him his properties. He owns a McDonald's and just got his property. For real? Calvin? Calvin, they used to hang out on the corner? So you own McDonald's. No, not yet. So when they start to make this move throughout the 60s and the 70s, how do black how do black folks, how do black advocacy groups respond to this? Are they concerned like this feels fishy or are they just excited at the opportunity to, you know, maybe own a Mickey D's? So I've been saying this, um, you know, in interviews. and I've, I, I tried to explain this to my students once. Herman Petty being approached by McDonald's to franchise a McDonald's is like if Mark Zuckerberg called me up right now as I'm talking to you and was like, you know what, Marsha, you should own Facebook. I'm going to give Meta to you. And I'd sit here like, wait, what? And I wouldn't be able to wrap my head around what was being given to me because it's wild because I don't know that kind of wealth and access and power. McDonald's is the first publicly traded fast food company. It is huge. And so if it's 1972 and a McDonald's comes into your neighborhood and there's a black franchise owner and you're welcomed and you see someone with an Afro in a print ad, this is like, it's hard to wrap your head around. So all of this is to say that like people embraced it and they really did think that it could provide good jobs and money into the community. People were really positive on it. Now, There were always tensions about what did it actually mean for everyday people. And so I talk about in the book, you know, conflicts with the Black Panther Party for self-defense. There are conflicts with, you know, Black-led organizations about is this really Black-owned? But in places like Chicago, especially since McDonald's had become a hometown brand in many ways, 
people were ecstatic. They were really excited about it and they were hopeful. And I think it's so important to respect that hopefulness. So what was this relationship between the McDonald's Corporation and black franchise owners like? Did they those stores do better economically? Did they get the resources they needed to survive in their neighborhoods? Yeah, you know, this is an issue that has continued into today where black franchise owners, some will say that they are at a disadvantage because of the way that they're treated by McDonald's, that it's a double-edged sword, that they have had an opportunity to become wealthier than they could possibly imagine, to have access to a business that is, you know, a very serious entity, but you know, they'll say, but we we do it at a higher price than our white colleagues. And that's a problem that, you know, and this is what American capitalism is. It opens the door, but it will put you in your place immediately. And so, you know, for black franchise owners, they felt like they were not getting the very best stores. They were not giving the opportunity to expand their portfolio of stores. And, you know, there have been some recent lawsuits um, about black franchise owners who are saying that we are not getting Um, equal access and we're not getting the support we need. During the 2020 uprisings and after, you also saw corporations taking on a sort of new persona in the wake of social justice that they they had probably been inching towards in, in the years preceding. Do you feel like all of this, this sort of social playbook goes back to McDonald's? One of the things I point to in the book was Black History Month and rather um, the Martin Luther King Day holiday, that that was really controversial in the 80s when it was first adapted. And a lot of states didn't want to do it. But McDonald's was an early kind of supporter of MLK Day content. And that went a long way. In 2020, during the George Floyd summer, every company seemed to have like read the same manual on how to send thoughts and prayers on racial justice. None of it made sense, but every company like knew that they had to do that in a certain way. And I think McDonald's was really one of the front runners in that process. Dr. Marsha Chatlin is the author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Uh, Marsha, thank you so much for joining me. This was a very fun conversation. Thank you. This was really fun. And some news going into the week. Mayor Lightfoot is banning unaccompanied minors from Millennium Park during certain times in reaction to a 16-year-old being shot and killed near the Bean this weekend. Lightfoot says from Thursdays to Sundays, anyone under the age of 18 must be accompanied by an adult after 6 p.m. We've got more on what policies Lightfoot has and has not fulfilled in her promises to make the city safer. That's in our newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. Some good news you can use. Film festivals are in full force this week, including the Chicago Film Critics Fest at the Music Box with movies curated by the city's critics and the Palestinian Film Festival at the Gene Siskel Film Center Friday and Saturday. There's more info, again, at our newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. Jacoby is back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.